Well, let's turn uh, one final time, Lord willing, to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll conclude our study of this book today. We'll be spending most of our time in verses 10 and 11, but just for the sake of uh, a running start, let's back up to verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in all the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a little while, perfect you, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the Word of God. Uh, we're going to spend our time in, in verse 10 and 11 today, but just briefly I want to take note of, of 12 through 14. Peter concludes his letter by referring to one named Silvanus, um, our faithful brother. He says, it's, it's by him that I've written to you. So most likely this Silvanus was, uh, he just wrote down Peter's letter as Peter dictated it. And he could have been the one as well who carried the letter uh, to these churches. Um, in verse 13, he says, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. Uh, most likely Babylon is a, a reference to Rome here. And if Peter was in Rome, it would make sense why he wouldn't just advertise that in a letter uh, with persecution and all going on. So she who is in Babylon is most likely the church, the gathering of believers uh, who is there in Rome. And he sends greetings uh, also from Mark. And this is the John Mark that we read about in the book of Acts and the same Mark um, who wrote the gospel according to Mark, uh, which comes to us from Peter's perspective. And then he concludes in verse 14 with a simple command. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Uh, this was obviously pre-COVID, so uh, let's, not, let's not continue that practice um, here today. But uh, he concludes with, with the same greeting of peace that he began the letter with. Um, but let's, let's go back and, and look at this last message, that this last bit of content that Peter has for us in, in the letter. Um, he's instructed us back in verse 6 to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. As a result of our humility before God, according to verse 7, we're able to cast our anxieties upon the Lord and knowing that He cares for us. And as we saw last time, though we cast our anxieties on the Lord, um, we must still remain sober and vigilant. Why? Because we have an enemy. We have an adversary, the devil. Um, he prowls around like a roaring lion. He's seeking someone to devour. And if you are not sober, if you are not vigilant, if you do not stand firm, he will devour you. He will destroy you. Um, but he did give us that bit of encouragement there at the end of verse 9. 
that uh, we're not alone in, in suffering. And these Christians certainly were suffering under persecution. And he said, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And we just mentioned that last week that um, one of Satan's greatest tactics is to convince you that you are alone in your struggles and in your, tr- your troubles. Uh, but Peter reminds us, uh, God reminds us through his word that we are not alone and we need to really just be reminding one another uh, that you're not alone. And it's okay to share those struggles, to share those trials and those troubles that you're going through because you have God's people around you who can come alongside and help you and you can help one another through the trials. But we pick up today in verse 10. And Peter gives one more encouragement in that, and that is that there is another who stands with you. You don't just have your church around you. You don't just have Christian brothers and sisters to encourage you. But he says here in verse 10, but the God of all grace. You have the God of all grace. The God of the Bible surely is a gracious God. And, and you've heard grace defined in this very simple way, but there's really not much better way to say it, that grace is undeserved, unmerited favor. It's kindness, it's goodness that you do not deserve. And the God of the Bible certainly is a gracious God. Now, you kids, you have all experienced grace. Um, how many of you have Uh, Your parents have told you, if you don't change your attitude or if you don't start listening to me, I'm going to take all of your Christmas presents back to the store. Any, any of your parents told you that? My parents told me that. But you know what? I can't think of a single instance that they ever actually took any gifts back to the store. Now, does that mean I perfectly changed my attitude and obeyed? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, why, Why did they continue to give me those good gifts even though I didn't deserve it? Because of grace. That's grace. It's undeserved. It's unmerited favor, goodness, kindness. And that's what God is like. Now, a lot of people have the idea that through the Old Testament, you've got this harsh God, this God of judgment, this God of wrath. But then the New Testament comes along and he just sort of mellows out. He, he, he decides he's not going to be so angry anymore. And he starts being gracious towards his people. But if you really take time to read your Bibles and read the whole Bible, you will find that His grace is evident all throughout Scripture. From the very beginning, we see His grace in in His provision and in His promise, even in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned. They've committed that first act of rebellion against their Creator, and they ate the fruit. But what does God do? Now, if I'm God, good good thing I'm not... uh, The tendency might be, are you serious? I gave you this garden. I gave you this perfect environment to live in. Gave you everything you need. And you're going to disobey me. Zap. Let's start over. That's how many of us would respond. But God instead, when they realized that they were naked, that they were ashamed, that they were found in their sins, He killed an animal. And He clothed them right there in the Garden of Eden. But He didn't just stop with clothing them and covering their nakedness then, but He made a promise. Even in His curse, He made a promise that the seed of the woman would come, one who would crush the head of the serpent. And we know that to be Jesus. So even in the very beginning, God has shown Himself as gracious. The bulk of your Old Testament is history for Israel. 
And boy, y'all in Sunday school have been, have been reading about that, and God has surely shown His grace uh, to Israel. Yes, there were times He had to judge them. Yes, He had to punish them. He had to straighten them out because of their sin. But every time they cried out to Him, every time they repented, God relented of His wrath, and He turned back and showed mercy to His people. He restored them. He kept His promise. He showed them His grace. And we could look at example after example, but the God of the Bible is a God of grace. Now, when God revealed himself to Moses on the mountain, when he gave his law, this is the first thing that God said about himself. God reveals himself, and he says more than this, but this is the very first thing. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Surely, the God of the Bible is a God of grace. But he doesn't just say he's the God of, gra of grace, he says he's the God of all grace. All grace. Um, now, here's a, here's a quick Greek lesson for you. The word all in Greek means all. Uh, I've heard it said this way, all means all, and that's all all means. Okay, so there you go. There's your lesson for the day. Every time you see the word all in the Bible, it means just that. It means that he's the God of all grace. Uh, Ephesians 1.3, Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is grace for every single need that God's people have. There is grace for every circumstance, every trial, every bit of suffering that you go through. There is more grace than you could ever need, an endless supply. What did Paul say in Romans 5.20? It says the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So whatever amount of sin, whatever amount of trouble, whatever amount of trial you have, there is more grace than you could ever possibly imagine to sustain you and carry you through whatever you face and to forgive your sins. And in this passage, this, this, this one verse alone, Peter points us to, uh, you could categorize two major categories of God's grace. The first, he points us to God's saving grace. God's saving grace. You're familiar with the story and the song uh, by John Newton, that uh, wretched, if I may borrow his word, slave trader, um, a vile man, who turned Christian pastor and hymn writer. How did that happen? What made the difference? Well, he puts it this way. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. See, John Newton knew the God of all grace. He experienced the life-changing power of God's saving grace. And Peter describes God as the, the God of all grace, who is the one, he says here, who called us to His eternal glory. 
He called us to his eternal glory. Now, what does that calling mean? What does it mean that God called us? Usually, would Christians, at least around here, talk about calling? You think about maybe a pastor or a missionary, someone who's been called to a specific service for God. But when you read your Bible and you you look at the word calling and when God calls people, it's actually used in a very different way. You know Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And how does he describe those who love God? To those who are the called according to his purpose. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he says that you would walk worthy of the God who calls you, calls you to what? Into his own kingdom and glory. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, He called you, how? By our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. One more, 2 Timothy 1.9, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. So just on those verses alone, when the New Testament refers to someone who is called, who is he talking about? Somebody who's been saved. He's talking about a Christian. So in short, if you've been called by God, then you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you've been called by God. He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. One of my favorite examples of of, of the way God saves people is John 11 and, and the story of Lazarus. Lazarus has died. He's in the tomb. There's no hope. There's no help for him. He's been there four days. He's stinking. His family's still mourning. Jesus shows up late. He goes out to the tomb anyway. He says, remove the stone. They remove the stone despite their their arguments and their reasons why he shouldn't. And what does Jesus do? He calls Lazarus by name. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, who's laying in the tomb, four days dead, rotting and stinking, opens his eyes, takes a breath, his heart beats, he gets up and walks out of the tomb. That's what God does when He calls sinners. You're dead, you're in your trespasses and sins, no hope, no help, no way anybody can do anything for you. And God comes up and He says, hey you, get up, come to life, and you come to life. That's salvation. That's what happens to you when you're born again. If you've been born again, you've been called. He called us to His eternal glory. John says it this way, 1 John 2.25, This is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. God has called you to life, not just a life to live for Him on earth, but an eternal life that goes on when you take your last breath here in the presence of God for all of eternity, in His glory. If you've been called by God, you've been born again, your sins have been forgiven, you've been granted eternal life in the presence of the glory of God. You've been called. But remember that Peter's telling us all this as a description of The God of all grace. The God of all grace. So what does grace have to do with it? Well, if you've experienced grace, you said everything. Grace has everything to do with your calling, with your salvation. He says, the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by something good you did for God, right? By your standing in society or in your family, your community. 
No, by Christ Jesus. By Christ Jesus. So let me give you the end of 2 Timothy 1.9. I gave you the beginning. He says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. We don't deserve anything good from God. The only thing that you have earned that God owes you is wrath, judgment, hell. That's what you deserve. You've sinned, you've rebelled, you've broken His law. He doesn't owe you anything. But God, who is rich in mercy... For His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, has made us alive in Jesus Christ. By grace you have been saved. We only receive forgiveness and life as gifts of God's grace through Jesus Christ. He is the God of all grace who loved sinners so much that He sent His only Son to leave His throne in heaven where He was worshipped night and day, no problems, no pain, came and lived a sinless, perfect life among terrible human beings like us who rejected His message, who hated Him, and unjustly killed Him in the most horrible way a person could imagine. And in His death, Jesus took in Himself the wrath of God that was stored up for you. All the judgment, all the hell, all the wrath that you deserve, that you've earned before you were ever born, Jesus took it on Himself. So that through repentance and faith in Him, you could have His righteousness. So that you could be forgiven and granted eternal life. That is God's saving grace. And if you've experienced it, you can say amen. Well, I know we're Baptists, but we can't say amen. Second, he points us to God's sustaining grace. Sustaining grace. Peter, in his encouragement, throws in a line like this. He says, and after you've suffered a while. Peter's been pretty straightforward all along throughout this entire letter that Christians will not avoid suffering in this world. The more faithful you are to God, the more obedient you are to God's will and God's word, most likely the more problems you're going to have. The more opposition you will face, the more persecution you run the risk of experiencing. But we can be encouraged that in knowing that the suffering that happens in this world for the children of God is only for a little while. He says, after you've suffered a while, just a little while. Back in, in chapter 1, verse 6 of this same letter, speaking of salvation and future glory, Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. We're not denying that Christians face things. You, Some of you are facing things right now. But Paul told the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he says, For the, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now you think about Paul who wrote this. The guy who was over and over again beaten 
for preaching about Jesus, the one who was shipwrecked, the one who had been hungry, the one who had faced all these things and eventually lost his head, was writing about the afflictions in this world. And he says, for our light affliction, it's just for a moment, is working for us. Our affliction is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Your affliction, your trial, your trouble is working for you to make your glory that much better. The more you suffer for Christ here in this world, the greater the glory you'll experience when you stand before God. Don't, don't, don't hate your suffering here. Now you, it's suffering. Let's, let's not just write that off. You don't enjoy it. For the child of God who has his hope rooted in, in Christ and in the grace of God, you can go through trial, you can go through suffering with the joy of knowing that this trial will produce greater glory in the end. The promise of future glory is nice. That's a wonderful gift of God's grace. But is there grace to endure it right now? And the answer is, Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. God gives grace to sustain us. In His grace, He promises you future glory. And in His grace, He promises to make sure you get there. He promises to make sure you survive your trials here on earth in a spiritual sense. Here's what God, in His grace, promises to do. He says here, He says, He will perfect, strengthen, establish, and settle you. Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle. You know, and there's one sense in which these four words that Peter uses is, is just, he's driving home one main point. God's going to take care of you. He's going to make sure you have every bit of grace that you need to stay faithful to him through whatever comes your way in this life. At the same time, though, there's a bit of nuance in each of these words. One commentator put it this way, he will perfect that which has begun, establish that which is right, Strengthen that which is weak and settle that which is already built. He says he will perfect you. The Greek word means to, to put in order, to mend, to reestablish or to make whole. Uh, that word was used in a, in a medical setting of setting a broken bone. Or in another way of repairing or refitting a damaged vessel. Hebrews 13 says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete. That is the same word, perfect you, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. Let's just be honest. We're broken people. We are broken people. We've all got our problems. We've got our weaknesses. We've got our shortcomings. I'll just be honest. I've been going through one of those seasons in my walk with the Lord where God is making me very aware of some of my shortcomings. <laughs> he is making me very aware of my deficiencies. I praise Him for it because He's making me more dependent on Him. But let's just be honest. We're all broken. But God is at work in us making us more like Jesus, setting that broken bone, mending that wound, making us into people who are pleasing to Him. 
because we've got something to offer him? No. (laughs) But because he is the God of all grace. He says he will establish you. Often when we suffer, we feel like our circumstances will break us down to a point that we'll never recover. There's no way we're coming back from this. We can't see how it can possibly work out for good. It feels like our faith at any moment could collapse. We could walk away and make shipwreck of our faith. But the God of all grace has promised for those who belong to him that the very thing that would destroy your faith will be what confirms it, what establishes it. Faith isn't really proven until it's been put to the test, right? We're told that Abraham had faith, but we don't really see that Abraham has faith until God asks him to put Isaac on the altar. And it was when he took Isaac to the altar that God proved his faith, that it was tested and shown to be genuine. And maybe that's where you are. Maybe you have genuine faith in the Lord and what what he's promised in his word. But that faith has to be tested. It has to be proven. And while it's painful, it stinks right in the moment, you will be able to step back afterwards and look back and say, that's when God proved that what I had really was real. I know that this faith is the real thing because God has put it to the test and He has established me. He has sustained me by His grace. He says He will strengthen you. Again, God's at work in your suffering and in your trials, not that you can be torn down, but that you may be strengthened. But be encouraged in this, that God Himself is actively involved in strengthening you. Philippians 4, you'll recognize the passage. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That doesn't mean you're going to win every football game, okay? I'm sorry. Your team's not going to pull it off because they got the verse on their helmet. But in Paul's context, he's talking about, I've learned how to have have things going well for me, and I've learned how to go whenever things are pretty bad. When I've got food in my stomach and when I'm hungry, when I've got clothes and when I don't have clothes, when I'm cold and when I'm comfortable. In all circumstances, I can do all things. I can be faithful to the Lord in all things because of Christ who strengthens me. If you've been born again, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. The very Spirit of Christ Himself is with you. And He is actively involved in giving you strength. Why? Because you can do something great for God? No, because He is the God of all grace. He's the God of all grace. He says He'll settle you. This is God's assurance that you are founded, you are grounded, you are firmly established on an unmovable foundation. Now, you might be a little unstable. You might be vulnerable. You might be a bit shaky. But I promise you, the foundation on which your life has been built, if it's built on Christ, is unmovable. He will settle you. This is God's assurance. And it's the same word that's that used when Jesus told of the houses that were built on the two foundations, right? The guy who built on the rock and the guy who built on the sand. You kids know the song. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down and the floods came up, but the house on the rock 
stood firm. Now, the fun verse as a kid is to say the house on the sand went splat, right? That's the part we love. And you might feel like your house is going to go splat. But Jesus says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descends, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall. For it was founded on the rock. Another bit of John Newton fits here, doesn't it? Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. So what's our conclusion? What, how do we respond to this? Well, I think it's pretty simple and straightforward in Peter. He says in verse 11, to him. To whom? The God of all grace. To him be the glory and the dominion. We say to God be the glory. We give Him praise. We ascribe worth to Him because He is worthy of all praise. He is worthy of all honor, worthy of all glory. We give praise to Him. But He says to Him be the glory and the dominion. He is the ruler. He is sovereign. He is in charge over all things in all the universe. Now listen, He's in Rome right now when He says this. This is treason. As far as the rest of the world is concerned, Caesar is in charge. Caesar is the sovereign. He is the ruler. But Peter says, no, Rome isn't the real power here. He says to him, to God, be the glory and the dominion, both now and forever. He says forever and ever. And the Baptists say, amen. How long did Rome have the dominion? Well, you can go read about it. You know why? Because it's history. How long did Babylon have power? It's history. How long did Assyria have power? Persia have power? Well, it's history. They don't anymore. Don't, don't put your hope in American politics because I want to promise you, it's not going to be here forever. Praise God. Not that America's not going to be here forever, but praise God that God's in control. <laughs> um, don't put your hope in any government and any earthly power. All glory, all dominion belongs to the God of all grace forever and ever. When this world burns and God has to recreate it all, when the final judgment comes and the sheep are separated from the goats, when the wicked have reached their judgment and their final destination and God gathers all His people to Himself, He will still have glory. He will still have dominion. And it will still last forever and ever. Amen. So, you might be suffering for a little while, as Peter says. You can depend on the God of all grace. And it might be that what you need to do right now is just praise Him for His grace. Even if you don't feel it at the moment, um, you, you kind of wonder where He is, when He's going to show up and take care of things. He's probably not going to do it the way you think He should. 
or the way you wish he would. But what he does is right. It is good. And it's an act of grace. Maybe you just need to take a minute and praise him. And ask for help. That you would be dependent on him. Bow your heads with me. Father, we praise you for your grace. We see it all throughout scriptures from the very beginning all the way to the very end. We've witnessed your grace in the lives of others. God, your grace isn't just something to read about or something to see that other people experience, Lord, but your grace is ours if we have trusted in Christ. Oh God, help us to depend on your grace, to not look to ourselves for strength. to rest in what you've already done and what you've already promised. You will perfect us. You will establish us, strengthen us, and settle us. Not because of anything good that we've done. Simply because you are the God of all grace. We give you glory. We recognize your dominion forever and ever. Amen.